Hello and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Nightmare. As always, I am your host Lorraine and this week is a very special week for me because the podcast was one years old on July the 1st. So I'd like to say obviously a big thank you to everyone that's like listened over the year or joined today or shared or retweeted, whatever. I really appreciate it and it's helped me so much. Uh, So for this one, I thought I'd go for a big one, a film that everybody knows And I thought I'd pick a film from the year I was born. So I've gone all the way back to 1974. Yes, I'm that old. And this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. survives what will be left the texas chainsaw massacre after you stop screaming you'll start talking about it the texas chainsaw massacre was directed by toby hooper he also wrote the screenplay along with a kim henkel it is rightly so an 18 it needs to be an 18 and is on for an hour and 23 minutes the original budget was said to be only sixty thousand dollars but I've also read that it could have been up to $300,000. But because this film did end up making over $30 million, they made their money back. So no biggie if they did go up to the higher end of what you see. The film has gone on, like most horror films, to make quite the franchise. I think it has eight films. And I know there's a fan-made one in the works. And there's another one coming out in 2021, or it's been made in 2021. So that would bring it up to 10. The main horror icon for this film is Leatherface. And he, of course, is up there with kind of the original heavy hitters. When we think of Kruger, Voorhees and Myers, he goes along with them. But unlike the others, he doesn't he doesn't seem to have this superhuman element to him. I don't think he does anyway. Obviously not Kruger because he's in his dreams. But the other two, they they just can't be killed. But he does obviously have strength. He's a big lad and obviously he has the chainsaw which running around with that, what a heavy thing. But he is strong in the sense that I think he gets the advantage, A, because of his location. I mean, this place is out in the middle of nowhere. And B, he's got a little team working for him. With the others, they're all on their own. They're lone wolves. Whereas this fella, he's got a few weirdos, 
if that's what you want to call him, in the house. So, and he gets people kind of like, obviously in this film, people go knocking at his door and the ones that don't are brought to him. So he doesn't even have to leave the house. To be a killer, he doesn't even need to leave the bloody house. So, and also it's in an area where nobody's really going to say anything. The cops are probably part of the family. Because I think I saw in the um, Jessica Bill one, wasn't it? The cop, he was kind of, oh yeah, because he does that disgusting thing with the dead body, doesn't he? The one that shot herself. Yeah. So yeah, so they're probably kind of involved in it. Um, so no one's going to come knocking on their door. But this film is the story of a group of young adults. There's these two siblings. We've got Sally and she's played by Marilyn Burns and her brother Franklin. He is played by uh, Paul A. Parton. And they go on this trip with three of their friends slash partners. Firstly, we have Jerry, who is with Sally, and he is played by an Alan Danziger. And then we have Kirk, who is with Pam, and he is played by a William Vale. And then we have Pam, who is played by Terry McMine. And they all, unfortunately, on their travels, eventually come face to face with a family of cannibalistic psychopaths. These are the Sawyers. A nice name. The two siblings are part of this trip because they want to visit their grandfather's grave, and then they're going to go and visit an old family home, which has kind of been left, you know, and the, the elements have got to it. Obviously, nobody lives there. It's off the beaten track, and they all kind of go wandering, and then they come face to face with this unpleasant family. The Sawyer family comprises of Leatherface, played by Gunnar Hansen. We've got the hitchhiker slash nubbins. He is played by Edwin Neal. And we have the grandfather. I don't even know if that's a person. You want to see his face. He is played by John Duggan. And we have the old man slash Drayton. And he is played by a Jim Seedow. So when the film starts, we actually get the feeling that this is all a true story because how they phrase what has happened. We have this wording up on the screen as somebody reads it. So it feels very, very real. Now, while the story itself isn't necessarily real, it is based on the real life events of a certain serial killer, and that is Ed Gein. He has popped up in quite a few films. He's been the inspiration for quite a lot, such as Psycho, and of course, The Grace from All Time, Science of the Lambs. So as you watch this film, you will see a lot of similarities with Leatherface, the house, the lifestyle, as Ed Gein. Firstly, we have the use of human skin, murder, and also how Leatherface is treated. So Ed Gein himself, he was, um, if you're not over familiar with him, he was like born in 1906 on this small farm near Plainfield, Wisconsin. Now, this area that Leatherface lives on he is on a farm. It's very remote. He came from a controlling background, he had an older brother, Henry, and they weren't allowed to play with other children. And now if you look at Leatherface and his family, they are also very remote. And Leatherface does seem like he's a little bit mistreated. So Ed Gein's brother and mother would go on to die. And he then boarded up the, the some of the rooms in the house. He kept his mum's corpse. And he would then visit cemeteries. And as we see at the beginning of this film, there is a whole cemetery scene. So he would visit cemeteries. He would take their skin, mate suits and all this kind of stuff. And then it eventually turned to murder. So when he was caught, there was a lot to suggest he did a lot of other things with the skin apart from make himself a suit because um, that's how we kind of know him. So he made bowls, he upholstered chairs, lampshades. And like I saw a lampshade within this film and it definitely would make you think that's where they got the idea from it. And also, as I said, masks. 
Now, with Leatherface, we don't really see his face. We see, obviously, a bit of his mouth and his eyes, but he tends to wear these masks, and he's got three of them. These masks are used to show how he's feeling. Like, what do these masks actually mean? He needed the masks because he couldn't be himself. So these were a way for him to do that. In fact, there being himself, you know, there was there was nothing to be, I felt. Like, there was nothing underneath it. And actually, then I saw Hanson talking about how he, Toby and Kim, came up with the concept of the mask because there's nothing really going on behind them. We do see a bit of him, but you don't feel like there's much there. And I think as well with that kind of killer, it makes it more terrifying because there's nothing to reason with. Like when we look at the likes of Voorhees and Myers, there's no speech there. Like you're not going to get them to stop. Um, I mean, you can talk to a Kruger, but, you know, he's a dick. He's not going <laughs> to listen. So, you know, there are quite a few versions um, I noticed of how Leatherface became Leatherface. and But I'm just going to look at it from this point of view. So this family is apparently not his actual biological family as his mother died while she was working in a slaughterhouse while giving birth to him. And the sad thing is apparently that when, when he was born, his boss was just like, oh, you're just getting in the way now and threw him in the bin. And then he was picked up. So maybe I'll go and hit the franchise at another point because I've heard that there's lots of different variations. I don't remember a lot of the movies. It'd been quite a while since I'd seen this one. While I absolutely love it, I don't know if I'll watch it again, mainly because of the last 15 minutes, which, which I will obviously go into in a bit, but it's very screamy and loud and manic. So you need to be in the right frame of mind for it. But I, I probably will hit the franchise again because I'd like to know what happens to him. But because there's a few variations of how he became who he is, I guess you kind of have to just take, you know, you just take whatever one you want, really. So after we're told about the five young adults at the beginning, we kind of go straight into the depravity of what these people the Sawyers, are capable of. And that's with the flashes of rotten corpses which have been placed in the cemetery. And this gives us an idea of what we're in for. Plus, it's the first thing we see that actually does relate to serial killer Ed Gein, who would rob graves. And when we think of Ed Gein in relation to this movie, we tend to obviously go straight to Leatherface, but that's because of what he looks like. But to me, I don't know, it would appear as well also that he embodies more than just this main guy he is embodied in more than one character. And I'm watching this. I felt that Leatherface, while a great character, he's not necessarily the bad one in this. Now, bear with me. He's bad. He's bad. But he's not the worst. He is definitely a product of his environment. Also, he doesn't necessarily come across as evil, but more unable to really know what the difference between right and wrong is to an extent. And we see this with how the rest of the family are around him, as the, especially at the end of the film. It's like he has no control he's under control you know he, he's the muscle he's the muscle of this and you get the impression that he's actually afraid of everyone he lives with which is really hard to imagine because of what he does up until the end scene it, it's kind of like a very standard horror film that's in you know the middle of nowhere but by the ending, it's like where it takes another level for me. And it's not that it is a, it's gory. It's just a complete mindfuck. What they do to Sally is so cruel and it's pure torture. Plus, you know, she nearly gets away only to be taken back. Like that's one thing about certain horror films is when you see the person get away and they're taken back and you're just like, no, why? Um, but it really kicks off, I suppose, from the moment when her brother Franklin is killed. In basically, it's basically when it all goes to shit. So up until this moment, apart from the beginning, 
I have to really admit, I'm not a, I'm not really bothered about any of the five. I don't really care what happens to them. There's none of these characters that you're like, I like. They're just all a bit annoying. So while it can be a bit of a standard horror film in the middle, the beginning was odd and the ending was brutal. As we start with this group on their road trip, um, where they've been to the graveyard and the locals are a bit odd, but that's about it. You don't really think anything's wrong. But in true typical form of this era, there was someone hitchhiking. So, of course, they pick him up. And if there was ever a scene to show you that you should never pick up hitchhikers, this is it. Do not do it. And the guy they pick up is Nubbins Sawyer. Now, everything about this guy screams run to fuck. Okay. So as he gets in the van, he is very manic in the way he talks, in the way he moves. He can't stick, sit still. He is all over the place. He's got this large birthmark on his face and he's got a I can't really talk properly, but obviously this has nothing to do with with him, like what he looks like. He's terrifying because of how he acts and those eyes, those psycho eyes. Plus, he also tells gruesome stories of working in a slaughterhouse, but he likes it just a little bit too much and it's really disgusting. And then he's got these pictures. He likes to take photos. I must admit his camera was really cool though. But the weird thing here as well, if, if it could get any weirder, is Franklin. He is loving all this chap. And Yes, Nubbins is odd, but Franklin is a little bit too enthusiastic here about what's going on. And I have to admit with Franklin, he was such a pain in the ass. He was so annoying. You do not like him throughout this whole film. He was so freaking needy. He's so childish. Now, I get he's frustrated because he, ex but he expresses it in a, in a really bizarre way. And the way he talks about the whole slaughterhouse thing, it's like he's some excitable teenager. He would be a very annoying brother to have. So in this car, in the van, they're all talking, blah, blah, blah. Well, Franklin and Nubbins are talking. The others are kind of a bit like horrified. And Nubbins takes a picture of Franklin. And then it just escalates really quickly from here because he wants to sell the picture and they don't want to buy it. And he gets offended. And then he does this weird thing where he like takes out these little firecracker things and burns the picture. But I'll be honest, <laughs> I don't know much about drugs. And I thought he was going to snort it. I thought there was some like weird drug thing but then he sets it alight, alight and puts it in his pocket. It's so, so odd. But he also has this blade, but he's shown it, but he's done nothing with it. But then he takes it out again and attacks Franklin. And so after he's attacked Franklin, it's, you know, obviously everyone's going crazy. He's jumping out of the van. But the thing that really kind of got me is when he's in this van, he talks a lot about how he lives around the area. So when they go look, looking for this other home, you know, their their family home, and then everyone goes off wandering, I'm kind of in my head going, why would you go looking for another house when you know that one of these houses, this guy could potentially live in? But that's a side point. Anyway, so after the attack, he's out of the van. And again, his reaction is really bizarre. He's like kicking the van, he's making these strange noises and faces at them, and he marks blood on. Now, apparently, they do get away, but apparently the blood was meant to be them marking the car. I read that. I didn't come up with that. That was them marking the car so that when they got to the petrol station, the old man could like see, okay, he's been in there. These ones, you know, they're for dinner because, you know, they're cannibals. But the old man, you kind of get a bit confused by him because, you know, he is, it's almost like he's trying to say, oh, you don't want to be going up there. Stay away from that. And he's not being dramatic or anything. He's just like, oh, nothing to see up there. But, if, you know, they don't listen. They want to go and visit and, you know, they go off to their abandoned place. Now, as mentioned, there's friends couples here and first couple Pam and, Pam and Kirk go off and they want to do their own thing. And this is where we know then it's not going to, it's not going to go where, go well. And it's a, it's a really strange scene to me 
maybe because I don't understand why people do this. And it's it's not so much because they walk up to this house. It's because they knock on the door, but it's then how they act afterwards. Now, when you go to someone's house and you knock on the door and they don't answer, you don't let yourself in. They're either not home, they are home and don't want to talk to you, or they haven't heard. All three, in my eyes, mean go away. Especially if you're in the middle of nowhere and have just had a really strange, bizarre encounter with some fella from the area. The deaths that follow from this, they all happen quite quickly, but they're not overly gory. It's more how it's done than the killing. It's just, it's, it just kind of happens and it's taken. First, we have Kirk, the first idiot to go in and check, um, check it out. And not being funny, you know, as soon as you walk in, you see the decorations. It's really questionable and you might not want to proceed any further. And this is when we, like, I knew that we were going to see Leatherface at this time. I couldn't remember how. And I thought he was going to kind of going to come running out with his chainsaw, but um, he doesn't. But it's a very quick encounter. He just kind of comes out and whacks him over the head with a sledgehammer, slams this door thing, and that's it. He's gone. That's it. He's gone. And I was like, okay, I'm okay now. I've got over. <laughs> I'm being very dramatic. So it's here that we see the first mask of Leatherface because he is. This is his killing mask, and. As this moment when we first see him, we of course think he's the dangerous one, the evil one, and he's the one we got to watch out for. Now, obviously we do, but he's not the only one. But for now, let's just be worried about him. So obviously we have Leatherface. He is doing his thing with this guy. And uh, as we see him go for Kirk, you know, we don't get a lot of time to react. And we know Pam's outside and we wonder what she's going to do. And Leatherface has slammed the door. It's all gone. And... The doors are like really weird doors. They don't look like they belong in their house. They're like very clinical and they slide. I mean, maybe that is a thing in um, these areas, but it looks a bit odd to me. And of course, Pam gets curious. But before she goes in, I have to say, this is one of the greatest shots. And I watched the uh, chat about it and it's been, you know, well documented as being one of the um, greatest shots. And uh, so before she goes in, there's like this low angle do dolly shot from almost underneath her. So she's on this swing and the guy's gone underneath and, you know, he starts with the camera under the swing and it gives us like this really great view of the home, but in a very different angle. And it's a great shot with the sky. It's blue and these amazing clouds. And Kim's like dressed in her summer wear. Perfect, perfect location. But it also makes the house look a little bit spooky. It's like the house is hovering over her. It's like it's going to swallow her up. And you know, she has no idea what's going to happen. But, you know, obviously she has to go and have a look. And this this shot was actually done by the cinematographer. And he was a guy called Daniel Steele. And this was his actual, his first film role. He was only 23. And, you know, from watching him discuss this, he was basically saying a week after shooting, they shut them down because apparently you had to have a shot list. So him and Hooper, who was only about 25 at the time, they went off and made this list. Then they made this list, came back to work. Let's get to it. But the next day, Hooper changed it again. And it turns out that the list was just made so that he could like tell the powers of B to piss off so that they could do their own thing. And, you know, Pearl then discusses this shot of when Kim goes in and how he came up with the idea to follow Pam along. And this makes the house like appear closer and closer until it fills the frame, which it does, obviously. Duh. And um, the money people showed up when this was happening and they again tried to stop them. And, he, and Hooper's just like, nah. I'm doing this, man. If you don't want me to do it, then I'll go. And they left it in. And luckily they did, because it is an absolute great shot. It really is. And a little side fact, uh, when Daniel Pearl met Steven Spielberg, the great Spielberg, 
he said, oh man, you're the guy that did this and, you know, sat down and got him to have a chat with him about it because he thought it was a really great shot and it was. So I thought that was pretty cool. Little side note there. But like most things, the whole scene did frustrate the hell out of me. She was quite a weak character and I find her really annoying. There was no real fight in her for me. And I'm not talking about when she came face to face with Leatherface. I mean, before this, like when she first enters the home. Now, I get it's a bit of a strange place to be. There's skulls, there's feathers, there's a mess. She's lying on the floor. She's coughing really loudly. And in general, she's just being really, really loud. Now, granted, you know, you probably don't expect to see what she did. But still, I'll be honest, I just didn't care that she... I knew she was going to get taken, but I didn't care how. Um, but out of all of them, I suppose, apart from Sally, she kind of suffered the most, which obviously isn't nice. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh on her. Uh, she did try and run once she saw Leatherface. But, you know, how he grabs her, which is, a, I think, is a scene that most people know. There's memes and everything, I think, out there. How he grabs her, it's so traumatizing because he's so big. And he kind of holds her. And she's screwed. She, she's not going anywhere. So any hope is all, is all lost here. And then he just simply places her on that meat hook and she's got her fella next door he's about to be cut up for lunch and you know with seeing this she knows even more how fucked she is and there's no way of her getting off that hook so her experience is a bit more drawn out I did it did make me think actually in this like when you see what happens to Pam and you see what happens to Sally the men kind of get a bit of a quicker death whereas the women are made to suffer just that little bit longer so, of course, Pam and Kirk have been gone a while now, and the rest have no idea why. So, you know, got to go looking. Jerry goes looking. And again, gorgeous, gorgeous sunset, gorgeous scenes, gorgeous shots. And uh, it just looks so amazing. And, it, of course, he goes to find Pam. And he does. He goes into the house, and she actually isn't quite dead. She's not far from it. And again, whack on the head. And again, really quickly. So we don't really get time to be scared um, with these three. And like I said, you don't really care too much, you know, obviously I don't wish this to happen to them, but you know, you, you, you kind of, once they're kind of dead, you're kind of done with them. They're over and done with. Now the next kill is Franklin. And I feel that this kill represents how we feel about him as a character. Well, how I felt about him as a character. So they want to go look at, now Franklin's in a wheelchair and the terrain isn't fit for a wheelchair, but he makes his sister push him through all these woods in the dark and you know his attitude really sucks and they just almost bump into Leatherface and he is killed with such brutal force here I mean he gets slashed up we hear the pain now I get as annoying as he is he didn't deserve this but he was such a pain he was so horrible but this definitely feels like how we feel about Franklin and he was made to suffer you know not as much as uh, the other two, but, you know, he was made to suffer. So it, it kind of felt like, yeah, he deserved that. But not really, if you get what I mean. I don't want to be mean here. Anyway, so for Sally, the nightmare is now going to really begin. And because she's obviously wondering where her friends are. What's happened to Franklin doesn't look good. So she probably knows her friends were fucked. And it's just basically screaming for the last, what, 15, 20 minutes. But this is where I think we get into them one of the most uh, iconic horror scenes of all time. So she's being hunted by Leatherface, where there's a jolly little chainsaw, and she manages to escape. And she gets to this garage, 
and uh, there's this, uh, she manages to get away from him. She does go into the house, but she manages to get out of the house and then she runs to the garage where that old man was. Now, it turns out that he is just as sick and twisted as the rest of them. He's in fact one of them and he knocks her out, puts her in the truck. But it again, it just has to take you to that even bigger level of sickness, doesn't it? Because the whole way back, he's kind of this real, real weird, sinister kind of like laugh to him while prodding her with a stick and it's just like you sick fuck like you know it's already bad for her you know why do you have to make it worse I don't know why I'm trying to reason these guys out of this I really don't so he gets back where all the others have died and we meet up with again the hitchhiker he's kind of made it home and it just keeps getting more manic as they both bring her inside but the old man he's kind of saying a strange thing here it's kind of they go in and the door's been damaged by Leatherface and he comments on it and it's just quite a strange thing to comment on it's it's so normal, like how mad you'd be if your kid ruined something in the house. And I just find comments like this bizarre from this type of people. And this is when we see Leatherface again in, a, in another mask. And he's wearing an old lady mask and he's doing chores, kind of like the role of the mother. And Drayton, who's the old man, he kind of comes in and he appears very abuses, abusive. And this is where we see Leatherface back down and how afraid he is of him. Because when you see Leatherface killing, he's standing tall. He's up there. But whenever he's around him, he's if you notice, he's kind of bent over a little bit, kind of cowering as if he's, you know, don't hit me type thing. And, you know, in a sense, I suppose this makes Drayton even more dangerous than we can imagine. Um, but we're about to find out how bad he actually is. And you know, he threatens him with a stick and he's wondering where the others are. Make sure you didn't let him go. And then he tells him off for breaking the back door. It's just all very strange. And he Drayton then changes in the sense that he's trying to calm Sally down. His behavior makes no sense. And that's scary. So with the other two, uh, we know what we're getting. Like with Nubbins and Leatherface, we kind of know what they are. But with Drayton, sometimes it's a bit unclear as he goes from scolding Leatherface to trying to be nice to Sally. And then we get introduced to another member, Grandpa. And he's terrifying to look at when they bring him down. And Sally, she's been sat in this chair. She's all tied up and stuff like that. And then they just, like, you think they're going to do something. Like, don't get me wrong. This whole situation is really bad. But they just cut her finger and he's, like, sucking on it. And the whole scariness of this, obviously, the situation, but is her eyes, like, that terror in her eyes as they, you know, and they, as they will kind of sit down around the dinner table, but she kind of passes out and then she comes through and she sees Leatherface again. And again, the mask has changed. So he's got ready for dinner. He's done himself up. He's wearing um, a makeup mask. He's made an effort. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And that is, she starts screaming and screaming and it doesn't stop. But they just mimic her and they pull faces at her and they're making noises at her and they're kind of touching her hair and pawing at her and it's just so unbelievably fucked up and then if it couldn't get any weirder it does because Drayton who's in charge he won't kill he takes no pleasure in it he's no uh, no problem being pointed for this but he takes no pleasure in what's in killing people and it's a very strange dynamic between them all but of course then the scream is still going on so like a lot of times there's no speech. All speech has gone out the window. It's just noises and screaming and bah. But the scene itself, as you can probably imagine, it did cause a lot of problems on set. The cast wasn't happy. It was shot in a farmhouse in Texas. It was really hot. And um, the last scene, which is this, took about 27 hours of filming. 
the clothes were all dirty, they couldn't be washed, there wasn't a budget. And, you know, you see a lot of animals around there and they're actually real animals. But the food that they use, apparently they, they, that was real food and it was rotting and it caused the cast to throw up. And Marilyn Burns apparently was starting to hallucinate, believing that she actually was going to be killed. And Edwin Neal said that he found the whole experience more miserable than when he served in Vietnam. So, you know, maybe that added to the intensity of it because they were also freaking miserable. And then it's just a few minutes of just this staring from Sally with these wild eyes. And, you know, a lot of the dinner scene is from her point of view. We see what she's seeing and you wonder, will it ever stop? And I suppose that's the thing. I've heard people go, the end scene is too long. It goes on for too long. I can't take the screen, blah, blah, blah. But I suppose in reality, not all murders are quick. And torture can be a massive aspect of it. And the torture continues here then with the use of grandpa. That Like they're not done just staring at her and pouring at her and messing her. They then want grandpa to do it. But how's, I mean, this guy can barely lift his head. And again, Drayton tries to calm her down. And he's like, don't worry, grandpa was the best killer. He won't, it won't hurt. You know, in like a really normal way. Like, you know, if you were going to the doctors to have an injection, like that type of way, it's really bizarre. But when Grandpa is trying to kill him with the help of, you know, them holding the hammer and stuff, he's you watch him in the background. He's so giddy. But again, doesn't directly get involved because never cared much for killing. So they're all so manic. This is going on, but it kind of works in her favor because she does manage to get away. And, you know, when, they, when they're chasing her, it's weird because you feel like they could just grab her. But Nubbins is too busy trying to, to slash her with a knife. And then this lorry comes along and hits him, which is great. No one's sad to see the end of him, but this poor lorry driver, when he tries to rescue her and then Leatherface is trying to get through the door, but they manage to run off. I wonder what happened to him. But I do love the ending of when Sally does manage to finally escape and Leatherface is still kind of hot on her tail and this pickup truck comes along, she jumps in the back. And I don't know whether she's laughing or crying or screaming here. It's Her face is insane. She's covered in blood and she's kind of doing this weird laugh, scream thing. But it's such a great shot when we see her in that back, you know, through that manic look of screaming and laughter. There's, of course, relief. There's probably relief in that look as well. And we get that great shot of Leatherface um, and his frustration of her getting away and the sunset. It's all done to this gorgeous, gorgeous sunset. And he's swinging his chainsaw around in anger because she got away. And, you know, obviously the sunset doesn't match what's happening in the scene. You've got such beauty with such horror. But Sally here is most definitely the final girl and she takes her power back when she manages to escape. She sees her moment and takes it and, you know, all this while Leatherface and Nubbin's not too far behind and I didn't think she'd make it on my first watch of this, I have to be honest. But Sally, I suppose, is different to some other final girls because with some final girls, you see them, they get away because they kill their captor, you know, when you think of someone like Sidney Prescott. But she managed to jump in this truck and be saved in a sense. Don't get me wrong, she did do a lot of the work and I'm not taking credit away from her because what she endured. But, you know, there it's a different kind of finer girl. But just, just to kind of like round up, this film is a great film and it does what it intends to do. It's scary, it's stressful, it's loud. When I was finished, I needed to watch something tame to almost like calm down. And the dinner scene, it's brutal and took uh, the horror to another level for me. And the scary thing is, one thing about this film is it could happen. So that is my little take on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you again for joining me on my first episode of my second year. And uh, I hope you stick around for more. 
And I, of course, I'm going to be doing a, if you've seen it on Twitter, I'm going to be doing a 10-parter soon with my buddy Stuart over at British Murders. We're going to be uh, doing 10 episodes where each episode we talk about uh, one of the big three hitters, hitters, the other one, um, Voorhees, Myers and uh, Kruger. So stay tuned for that. And thanks for listening. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and Podchaser. And if you want more options, you can find me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, on Twitter as a Nightmare Pod. You can get me on Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare or email me as onceuponanightmarepod at gmail.com. So again, thank you for listening. I will chat to you again very soon and have a good day. Bye. The Podbreed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Podbreed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com.